This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Healthcare, not health cure. So recently, I was on a shift uh, where I picked up a patient who had pronounced dyspnea, and I dug into his chart and found out that he had uh, stage four non-small cell lung cancer, and had been trialed on a ton of different meds. And there was a recent note from the primary care doc, you know, that we pull up and read really quickly, and it it mentioned uh, code status discussion. And I went back and looked and saw that he'd been in our emergency department five or six times in the last few months, I just went straight into his room. And we addressed the dyspnea. It sounded like it hadn't changed very much for him over the last few weeks, but it was really concerning to the family how much he was working to breathe. And so we kind of did a history and physical like you normally would. His vitals were stable, but he had very much so dyspnea on exertion and dyspnea even just sitting there in the bed. And I wanted to address the DNR, DNI status that he had had in the, in the chart with his primary care doc a couple weeks before. And so I did end up confirming a lot of that with them um, because at the time I was weighing back and forth between having him admitted for this or sending him home as he had been admitted the other five times that he had been there. But kind of really when I started off with that conversation, the vibe that I got from the family was that they really did not want him to be admitted unless it was really necessary. And I felt like it was stable and it was more in his interest to not uh, be admitted because he was DNR and DNI and we felt like we could give him his best days at home and, and not have an inpatient stay. So we sent him home. I was on shift about two weeks later, maybe it was three weeks later, and he represented. And I didn't recognize the name at first on the on the board, but when I looked at the vitals and the chief complaint, I thought to myself, "Oh man, that sounds like a like a PE." And then I dug into the chart and I saw oh, I'd seen this guy, and it was the same guy, and so. His vitals were very wonky and and not okay. And I went into the room to talk to him and, and see him. And the family was there, and I recognized one of them. And they were tearful. And and when they saw me, they they looked a little relieved. But they were saying, you know, you have to treat him. Our doctors told us that he might get a a blood clot in his lungs, and that you guys could treat it. It threw me off a little because of his uh, recent conversation we had a few weeks before and his code status being the way it was and just his wishes that when he was more with it, um, the two weeks before that I'd talked to him made it sound like he would not want further care. He, you know, had a ECOG score of about three, which is just means his, his ADLs, the, the way that he was doing his daily routine was very diminished and his lifespan was pretty low just based on a prognosis for his cancer but the family was pushing very hard for what they wanted which was TPA it was obvious that he couldn't get lytics because he had metastases in his brain but they were then pushing for thrombectomy and wanting to take him to the OR to get a thrombectomy and really having to have those conversations with them in the moment was very difficult but to be able to articulate 
that I did not think, you know, that would be in, in what he would have wanted. And he was pretty altered at the time just because his blood pressure was so low. And he was really deferring to his family on that. But I think that they were really scared. You know, it, it's fine to be DNR until, you know, something really scary happens and that you're not ready for that time to come when you might need to fall back on that status and say, we won't do more. Long story short, he ultimately was admitted to the floor for symptomatic treatment of his dyspnea, of his pain from his cancer, actually. And he ended up passing away a few days later. It's really hard to reconcile what I knew his wishes were with what the family was pushing for a couple weeks later. And I did feel this urge to stand up for him, which which felt weird at the time because you're talking to these people in front of you, their father and their, their husband is pretty altered. But I felt like we had done a good job at the last meeting together of, of clarifying what he would really want. And I saw it almost as defending his wishes while also acknowledging that if I were in their shoes, I would be so scared of my, my father or my husband of having a you know really life-threatening pulmonary embolism that is theoretically reversible with a thrombectomy, but his wishes were to, to not be kicking that can down the road any further because he wanted to spend time with them at home. And I felt like really making it focused on what he wants was convincing for them and was soothing for them to let them know that they weren't making a bad decision by foregoing treatment for him. He had already laid out the framework for which he wanted to go, and this was his decision that he had already told them about. And it wasn't going to rest on their shoulders to decide what to happen in these situations. The beauty of that code status discussion was that he had taken away so much of that decision-making for them and that they could find a little bit more peace in that I think was was meaningful in the end. That story was told to us by Connor McWade, who's a third-year emergency medicine resident here at UC Davis. But man, that's kind of a sad way to start off a podcast, Sarah. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about this. We're going to be talking about end-of-life care. And Sarah, this was your idea, right? Yeah. So I recently read Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And one of the things that I took away from it is how medicalized and sterile death and dying are in our culture. And we spend insane amounts of money in this country to prolong people's lives when maybe the focus should be more on helping them live the best life they can for the time they have left. And, you know, as you know, we see our fair share of terminal disease and death and dying in the ED. And I realize that being able to help these patients and their families through this is part of my job. And I feel like the more awareness of end of life issues that we can bring to these situations, the better for our patients and for us. All right, I'm sold. <laughs> you know, you would think that being in pediatrics that this is not actually a part of my life, but it still is. You know, sir, I've always worked at a tertiary children's hospital, and therefore I have had quite a few children with terminal problems. Usually they're from like complex medical needs like congenital diseases or cancer. 
And recently, I had a super complicated case of a teen with fatal cancer. I had seen this boy several times over the last years, and he has beautiful, well-meaning parents, but they didn't want him to know anything about his disease, and they as a family struggled to come to terms with his illness. Even when they arrived with the pink pulse in hand and a critically ill teenager, they struggled to reconcile this pulse that they were holding and their dying child in front of them. I'm going to be honest with you, it was really hard on us as a team, and fortunately, we do have Pete's palliative care team here at UC Davis, and our Hemonc team was also well aware of him and the family's personal struggles. So we were able to admit him where he died later on, but it left me and my team with several questions. Yeah, the struggle is real. There is hardly a shift that goes by for me when I don't have a patient with some sort of serious life-threatening illness. And you know, that actually makes sense with the data, Sarah, because 75% of older Americans are seen in the emergency department within the last six months of their life. I think of the ED as a kind of staging area for patients at all critical points in their serious illnesses. But that does not mean it's easy. So these difficult patients, their families, they're often bewildered and defensive. They've been to numerous specialists and facilities in an attempt to control their illness. Or maybe no one has talked to them about their prognosis in a way that they can hear. They don't comprehend what the arc of their life realistically looks like. And none of us get too much training on this topic in medical school or in residency, especially compared to how often we actually face this in our field. It's super messy, and I'm glad that you had the idea to talk about it. (laughs) So to answer some of our questions, we turn to Dr. Rupi Chima, who is a palliative care and emergency medicine physician at Kaiser South Sacramento. And we also spoke to Sherry Jinwala, who is a pediatric palliative care doctor here at UC Davis. So despite the topic, this was actually a fun interview because we asked them the same questions and heard the perspective from both an adult general EM physician and a pediatrician. And it was really a unique experience. First off, we wanted them to define some terms. What is palliative care? And how does that differ from hospice? So palliative care is kind of an interdisciplinary team that helps care for patients that have chronic diseases. So if you see an inpatient palliative care team, you'll have a doctor, a nurse, social worker, a chaplain. Uh, If it's on the outpatient side, there might be a volunteer involved too. The idea is that you're treating both the medical and the social and the spiritual needs of a patient and trying to help them in a pretty difficult time. People also ask what hospice is. They kind of associate the two. And the way I describe it to patients is palliative care is the umbrella, and hospice is sort of kind of the tail end. And when I see patients and their families at first, a lot of times they kind of balk at the idea of palliative care. So I say, you know, we're not here under hospice terms. I don't think you have a less than six-month prognosis. When and if we get to that point, we'll talk about it, but we're here to help manage symptoms and kind of work on your uh, quality of life at this point in time. When I think about palliative care in pediatrics, the thought is very similar in that it really sort of is a way to look at the patient in the context of family, their social supports. When I describe it to patients, I I really talk about it as a way for us to not really focus on the possibility of death, but more focus on 
life right now and how we can help the child and the family make the most of whatever life they have, however long that may be. Hospice is really sort of the concept, and then it's a benefit. The concept of hospice is really, again, focus, you know, when curative therapies are no longer part of the goals of care for the family or the patient, then we really focus everything on comfort and making that life the best that it can be. Sometimes the two things, palliative care and hospice, get conflated, but they really are two separate things. And in pediatrics in particular, you know, oftentimes we will actually get introduced to the family at the time of diagnosis. So the child may be far, far away from the end of their life and may not need hospice services at all. And honestly, it's pretty rare for me to see kids come in on palliative care. So I'm curious to hear how pediatric palliative care is different. I think the biggest difference is that for most of us, you know, we don't expect our children to die, you know, as opposed to grandma or, you know, an older person. And and that applies to young adults as well. But I think there's a particular challenge with the little children or children, particularly from the parent and grandparent and family perspective. I think one of the other challenges is particularly with the school-age child and the adolescent is, you know, the the idea of consent and assent and how do you talk to the child about this and how do you help the family, help the child, help the sibling, perhaps even their classmates and friends process and grieve through not just the death, but also um, the illness. So I think those are particular challenges that we see in pediatrics. So where does comfort care fit in? I myself sometimes get a little confused, the comfort care hospice transition. I tend to think of comfort care as kind of those last days to hours where we're sort of mainly focusing on their symptoms, focusing on keeping them comfortable in that acute setting, you know, dyspnea at the end of life, those sorts of things. The idea behind the whole palliative hospice comfort care is comfort and symptom management and keeping you know people who are in a horrible time of their lives as comfortable as possible, helping support their families. I think we try to kind of set these arbitrary guidelines, and it's very unique to each patient and their family what comfort means at that point. You kind of have to have these discussions, and I think that's where we're a good resource to kind of sit down and say, well, what does this mean? Do you want a feeding tube? Do you want intubation? You know, what your code status should be and really kind of parsing out based on what their disease is, what their projected uh, trajectory is. Those terms are used very much more so in the adult world. In pediatrics, it's a little bit more nebulous. Um, But when we talk about comfort care, we really talk about medications and care really to improve the quality of life and precludes um, treatments and other things for a goal for curing disease. I love that they both talked about all of these definitions in terms of life, not just death. It's about optimizing life, identifying goals for life. Yeah, so going back to your story, Jules, you talked about a pulsed so let's talk about what a pulsed is and how that differs from an advanced directive. I sort of tell patients and their families a pulsed is, in a way, a cheat sheet for an advanced directive. So that kind of simplifies it. Um, a pulsed is what we're often filling out in the hospital. 
talking about intubation, resuscitation, and feeding tubes, which supposedly they're going to get rid of, so that may not be part of it in the future. And then an advanced directive just goes into more depth. So, you know, what is important to someone? What constitutes a good quality of life? It's a longer form. It's something that medics or we as ER physicians wouldn't quickly be able to look through, but it does just kind of identify a little bit more beyond code status and intubation. And so that's what I tell patients and their families. I think the other distinction between the two is that an advanced directive is a legal form that the patient fills out. And in that form, not only will they talk about what their desires and what they want and that sort of thing is, but they will also perhaps identify somebody to be their proxy decision maker if they're not able to make decisions for themselves. The POLST form is actually a physician order. So a physician or advanced practice, a nurse or PA has to sign it along with the patient. So when I think about palliative care, I think about an inpatient team. So why should we as ED physicians care about palliative care? I think in the ER, you know, it's not uncommon that we see someone coming in for four or five, six visits within a period of a year or months. And we're frustrated, they're frustrated. And I kind of started to realize that we're not explaining things well enough to our patients. And we should be kind of giving them some prognostication. We should be saying, hey, have you looked at the bigger picture? Because we're seeing that. Um, But a lot of times these patients aren't. And I think one of the biggest things I've realized, and I'm trying to tell more of my emergency medicine colleagues, is I think we're very um, goal-oriented, right? We get that pulse, we get that procedure, we get that admit, and we move on to the next thing. But I think it can be something as simple as, you know, pointing out that hey, you've been here, you know, six times in the last six months. How are things going? And and just sort of saying, well, I'm worried that maybe we aren't going to get you back to where you were six months ago. And just planting that seed. And even if it doesn't change this admit, even if they come in another two times, at least we're contributing to this global idea that they may be at a new baseline, that the disease is, is maybe changing. And I think we can do a lot. We see a lot. People come into the ER because they're not doing well. And so I think at that point of crisis for families and patients, we don't have to take advantage of it, but we can definitely kind of use it as a flag point to kind of look at the next thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that this is important, but I often don't have the words. So I really liked how Rupi asked an open-ended question. How are you doing? And then said, you know, I'm worried we might not get you back to where you were. Right, Sarah? I mean, I think she made a great argument. What could be more emergent than death? You know, all jokes aside, my grandfather was that classic old country doc, and he had patients that when they came to the hospital, the hospital would call him and he'd be like, okay, don't do anything, keep them comfortable and I'll be there. And he would come to their bedside and hold their hands and have those difficult conversations with them as part of like longitudinal care from early on in their illness all the way to holding their hands as they take their last breaths. I think that idealized and and really romantic view of medicine is not really a reality anymore. And so many of your patients in particular, a little bit less so in peds, but so many of your patients don't have that doctor that sees them from the beginning to the end. They don't have somebody that's looking at the big picture like my grandfather did. And so we need somebody that can step back and look at the big picture. And just by necessity, that's going to be us more often than we feel comfortable with. 
Sarah, when do you think about end-of-life care in your patients? When do you have that conversation with them? Yeah, I think this comes up most often with my patients with end-stage cancer or heart failure, and they're becoming more and more symptomatic, and they are coming in hoping for a medication or an admission to fix things. And I know we don't have anything that's going to fix them, but man, that is a big can of worms to open up in the ED. You know, perhaps the simplest method of identifying end-of-life patients is asking yourself the question, would I be surprised if this patient died during this admission? Or would I be surprised if this patient is alive in six months? If the answer is no, the patient would likely benefit from an end-of-life conversation. Yeah, and there are a lot of barriers to having these conversations. I know for me in the ED, time is a big one, but what are some others? I think some of it is training. I don't feel like many of us have gotten formal training in how to talk about these things and how to bring up these really difficult topics and how to navigate it with patients because it, these conversations are often emotional, they're charged, and it's scary to think about having this conversation. I also think time is a factor because these conversations take time and if you have a long-term or long-standing relationship with a patient, you can have those conversations over a period of several visits, but it does take time. And so that, I think, is a barrier as well. Yeah, so time in the ER for sure. I think space, I don't know how any facility is set up, but we don't have nice, quiet areas to even have like a 10, 15-minute conversation. And then I think one of the bigger things is if you're just not familiar with the patient, at least before I started this fellowship, I felt like it wasn't my place to bring up some of these things. And in some ways, I still don't. I don't think we should be changing you know, courses or doing anything major unless we've talked with their specialist. But I do think we can kind of, again, point out the bigger picture and, and maybe just plant that seed. And I think every doctor should be doing that, their primary care doctor, their emergency doctor, their specialist. Because if we're all sort of on the same page, which we can see that, right? We know how trajectories go. We know that things don't look good. A lot of times the patient and families are so in it, they can't see the forest for the trees. And then, you know, as far as palliative care, if you're thinking kind of end-of-life comfort care, again, it's just lack of familiarity. I think a lot of nurses and doctors aren't trained in what those kind of end-of-life symptoms look like and how to treat them. And then it's just the ER is not a great place. It's so chaotic and loud and noisy and I don't think I would want a loved one of mine passing away in the ER. It would be pretty traumatic. Um, and so those are kind of the big barriers I see for the ER. Yeah, those are all barriers that I've thought about, and especially having that difficult conversation. Sometimes it just seems easier to admit them and let the inpatient team deal with that. You know, Sarah, I've said it before, and I will probably say it many times in the future. Difficult conversations are a part of our job. This is honestly kind of what we signed up for. But each person, each patient has their own unique set of values, beliefs, and goals that together shape their own personal philosophy about life and death. That makes this conversation that much harder. So we wanted to know how they initiate the conversation. Asking a patient what they know about their disease or where they think they are in their disease or what the plan is, I mean, that cuts through a lot. You know, if they think, oh, I'm getting cured in their own palliative chemo, you know that this discussion needs to be had in a little bit of depth. And so asking some of these questions, which seems like will take longer, actually helps in the, on the back end, I think. So, 
we are very good at creating relationships with patients and families in a short amount of time. That's kind of one of our skill sets is reading the room, kind of figuring out what to do. We're not always right, but we, we we're good at that. And so I think getting comfortable at asking some of those and saying, well, you know, ha- have they ever mentioned palliative care? Have you heard about that? Maybe that's something I can refer you if that's a specialty available. Yeah, they focus on symptoms. And, and a lot of times patients and families are like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then you kind of open up that door to have these discussions down the line without kind of getting into it yourself in, in that short amount of time. I also think there are some, again, very basic things that can help with these conversations that don't necessarily need to lead into having a really in-depth conversation because I'm not sure that the ER is necessarily the place for it. But even doing things like, you know, a kiddo who is frequently admitted or that kind of thing, just sort of saying, you know, this must be so hard for you. How are you handling this? Can I have somebody come help you with just how this must be for your child and your family? You know, those kinds of things. The other thing I um, think would be helpful also is to communicate with the primary care physician or whoever the specialist is that's taking care of the child because, you know, the doc may have had those conversations already or that it might sort of help sort of bridge some of those things. I love that Sherry points us back to our own humanity. Connecting with the patient or family on an emotional level really opens the door to those more tricky conversations. One of the phrases I really like for talking to families is to say, I am concerned about the health of your child. Have you or your doctor ever discussed the management of your child in case of a sudden deterioration? That lets me know where they're at. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm, I might steal that. <laughs> also, ASAP has a palliative care toolkit, and we put the link in the show notes, but it has this great guide on how to have this conversation in five minutes. So here we go. The five-minute ED goals of care conversation. Okay, the first one to two minutes, you're going to start off by eliciting the patient's understanding of where their illness is, just like what Rupi said. And then if they have an advanced directive, use that to build off of the discussion. After that, acquire a sense of the patient's own values. What is it that they want? What are their goals? Name those goals. Validate them. There are goals, their hopes, their fears, and expectations. In minute three to four, try to discuss treatment options using the patient's own words and understanding. Continually recenter the conversation on the patient, not the family's wishes and values, and then recommend a course of action, avoiding impartiality when prognosis is dire. That last minute, we're going to summarize and map out the next steps. This includes introducing them to the broader team of ED resources, like, for example, our chaplain or an observation unit or social workers. So I'm going to be honest, I don't know how realistic that is for five (laughs) minutes, but it does give us a framework. You know, another phrase that I heard that I really like is to say, what is the meaning of a good death versus a bad death for you? Is there anything that you want me to do for you now? I like that they're actually using the word death there. Yeah, and in reality, this can get really messy. So I ran into cases where the patient comes in and they are supposedly on hospice and they have a pulse that says DNR, DNI, or do not resuscitate, do not intubate. Should they even be in the ED? Can they get admitted? So kind of stepping back, so palliative care 
anyone with any chronic disease can be in palliative care. You still can see any doctor you want to go see. You can get admitted to the hospital, get treated for UTIs, pneumonia. There's no limit on that. Hospice, you start to say, okay, if it's something that's going to prolong life, prolong suffering, maybe we kind of talk about it. So if, But if they have symptoms, I guess you would treat it. So an example would be if you have someone with pretty end-stage dementia that's in the last six months and is on hospice and you start to think, well, maybe they have a UTI, you know, you'd have a discussion with the family or the patient if they can about what treating that UTI would look like. And it may be something like we do antibiotics at home orally, and if that helps resolve some of the symptoms, then we'll do that, and that's okay in hospice. But if we're starting to get into going to the hospital and doing pressors and IV antibiotics, we kind of have to redirect and kind of say, well, maybe this is the end of life for this patient and how we kind of support them in that. So I think the biggest thing is having these discussions. There's no hard and fast rule. And I, it, you know, it's hard for me to say you can't do this on hospice, but you can do this on palliative care. The big thing is having a talk with the patient families about expectations and goals. Uh, as far as DNR and DNI goes, you're right. It's, it's kind of one of my frustrations is people see a pulse that says DNR, DNI, and they're like, we're not going to do anything. And, and that's a common misconception in the public too is, you know, DNR, DNI, they're just going to, you know, push me out the door and, and not do anything for me. All that's referring to is if the heart stops. So if the heart naturally stops, are we going to push on your chest? Are we going to shock your heart and try and restart it? Are we going to put a breathing tube down into your lungs to help support them? But everything short of that, if you have pneumonia, we can treat you. If we have all of these things, we can do that. And it shouldn't change the course of care uh, at that point. Well, in pediatrics, again, it sort of depends on what the goals of care are for the family. And one of the things about pediatrics is that these times are extremely difficult for families. And sometimes, you know, they might panic or there's somebody, some other family member, or they might get pressurized um, to do something at some point. And so they may bring their child to the emergency department in that setting. And we always tell families that no matter what they choose at the time that they make that choice, they can always change their minds. So if they choose to go into hospice, they can change their mind somewhere in the middle of that and say, no, this is not really what I want, and, and I want to try something differently. It comes back to sort of, again, having that conversation. So going back to, you know, DNR, DNI, those are orders. And I feel like it shouldn't really be about that. It should be about the conversation. That's just a small part of the conversation. But it's really about what are your hopes? What are your worries? What are you looking to get? How can we make this time the best for you? If our therapeutic regimen is actually going to prolong death, right, and not enhance life, then let's talk about that and what that means. And, and so that's what I think those are there for. They, they are tools, but it's just a tool. And what's most important is the conversation. I think that's a good point. That's one of the biggest things that's changed for me is it used to be, you know, do you want to be intubated? Do you want us to resuscitate you? Cool, DNR, DNI, move on to the next thing. It's talking about the outcome of that. So, you know, if you're coming in, you're a cancer patient that's metastatic, you know, you're miserable, your quality of life is terrible, but you're still full code. Even if I resuscitate you, you're still coming back to that level you're at currently. And I think a lot of patients don't realize that. We see it on TV, we see it in movies. You know, you're going to walk out of the hospital a new person. That That's not the case. And so a lot of my discussion has changed to, well, what do you want us to get you to? And, and looking at, you know, 
your comorbidities is, is there a risk you're going to come back with brain damage? Are you going to maybe be bed bound? Or you, and if, if some people actually, once they realize that, that's the last thing they want if there's that chance. As far as if patients on hospice can come to the ER, there's some exceptions. So generally, if a patient's on hospice, they shouldn't need to come to the ER. That doesn't mean they can't. There's no like fence at the front door keeping hospice patients out. But Medicare kind of covers hospice and it's part A. And so if you're on hospice, it can cover hospice or emergency hospitalization, that sort of thing. And so you can't have both technically. And so a lot of times if a patient's on hospice and they present to the ER, the hospice agency may kind of show up and revoke hospice and then kind of re-enroll them in you know, the, the general insurance they're in to cover that hospital cost because the idea of hospice is you're given a certain amount of money to cover that patient's needs every day. And I think the minute they get into the ER that they've already exceeded that, it's like in the hundreds of dollars a day, like 130, 150. It's not a lot of money to care for that patient for supplies, staff, you know, everything from day to day. Um, there is some parts to Medicare that allow kind of, they call it general inpatient care, GIP. And that's if we can't control their symptoms while at home. So if pain is beyond what we can do orally at home, they get admitted until it can be stabilized and then they can go back home. So it's not hard and fast that you can't come to the ER. Every hospice agency is different. I know Kaiser, because it's kind of a closed group, will allow some visits sometimes. Some units won't. And so it's sort of really some you know hospice agencies will allow dialysis depending on what the other uh, diagnosis is. If you have metastatic cancer, but you're on dialysis, the cancer diagnosis is what's getting you into hospice. And so you can sometimes continue it. Some agencies will say absolutely not. So you sort of have to take it on a case-by-case basis. And I love this reminder here that DNR, DNI, or comfort care, does not mean no care. It's about health care, not health cure. I like that the pulse tells us what we need to know in the ED in the first five minutes. Do we need to intubate this patient? Do we need to do compressions? But it's just the beginning of a much larger conversation. You know, Sarah, that reminds me of that patient I spoke about earlier that came in very ill and with a very worried family who was re-questioning details of that sweaty, balled-up pulse form that they were gripping. I wanted to hear from the experts How binding is that pulse? Can families override it? What if they say, do everything? Where is that line between following the patient's wishes, inflicting suffering on the patient, and not wanting to upset the family? Those are particularly challenging situations. And again, it sort of comes back to having the conversation. Certainly, if the patient is in extremis and requires intubation or that kind of thing, and they've made a choice not to, and the pulse is clear and the advance directive is clear, then their wishes should be followed. Having said that, you know, life is messy and things like that happen. And we see that particularly with children because it's it's just such an emotional time. And, you know, sometimes you just kind of have to work with the family and work with where they are and um, and see how we can lead them back to what the patient wanted. One of the things that I think of when I'm working with families in, in this setting is that the child will die, but the family is going to live with this. And one of my goals is really to provide them with the opportunity to be able to look back at their child's death and 
you know, of course it'll be sad, but not be in a position where they just can't look back because there's just so much anger and built-in resentment or other feelings there. So as time goes on, the pain doesn't go away. You just deal with it, you know? And so I want to be able to give families the ability to be able to look back and say, yes, I did everything I could have. And this is the only way that it could have gone. Yeah, I think um, that's when you know, referring people early and having these discussions early is important. I always try to ask families or the patient, hey, is your family aware of this? Have you talked to them? Can we help? You know, because a lot of times that discussion is really hard for someone to have with their loved ones. And so we can help facilitate that. You know, Connor struggled with this too in his story. And it's not unusual for loved ones to have doubts when the end comes. I mean, it seems like at least initially, it's okay to be more aggressive and then let things get sorted out after. We want families to have time and room to grieve, but ultimately we need to help the family understand that this is what the patient wanted and we need to honor his or her wishes, but this can't always be done in the ED. You know, another thing that I struggle with is when families don't want to tell the dying family member that they are dying and they cut the patient out of the conversation. It is interesting to hear how palliative care specialists approach this. We run into this, actually not infrequently at all, particularly in in peds. And there are some cultural aspects to it. So from a cultural perspective, in some cultures, this is not something that's spoken about. So I think you have to handle it very gently. And one of the ways we try to do it is to provide the family with tools to enable them to allow the child to talk. So even if they don't want us to talk, allow them to be able to have that conversation. And those tools may be things like books or games or, you know, you read a book and perhaps the book sort of goes into the concept of death or heaven or whatever it is. And you can sort of then have the conversation around it. Again, it just comes back to having conversations with families And being able to build a trust and being able to assure them that, you know, you're not trying to frighten the child. And I would say that a lot of the times we are able to get to a place where there is some ability to talk to the child about, you know, what it is that's going on with them. I think you have to respect where the family is. And I certainly have had experiences where the parents have said flat out no. And, you know, it's been really distressing for the team when the parent says no. But what we do in that case is then really work with the family to allow them to perhaps at least have some conversations. And I recall a a recent case where there was a teenager who died recently and the family was very adamant that they did not want the medical team to talk to him about the prognosis. And I was involved in conversations, and we talked with the mother. And as it turns out, she was able to have some of these conversations with her son, but she wanted those conversations to remain between her and her child and not have us come into the mix of it. So that was sort of how we tried to handle it there. Because the patient knew, the mother knew, everybody in the family knew. And what we hopefully were able to do is help them just acknowledge it and provide them with a way to create that space where even if it's not explicitly talked about, they can acknowledge it to each other. 
in the adult setting, a lot of times it's cultural as well uh, that you see that. And it's exploring what their concerns are. A lot of times you still kind of, you don't push it, but you do ask why they don't want to have them know and, and kind of skirt around it when you're maybe talking with the patient and, and see what they know about what's going on. But you kind of respect it. I know we've had a few cases where a mom, she defers to her son to make all decisions and he says, and there's a language barrier and, you know, he kind of says, you know, whatever I say is what goes. And, and you still get the translator and just kind of ask mom, hey, and, you know, she said son can answer everything and that's fine. I trust whatever he says. I don't need to know anything. And that's fine. I, I try to talk to families about, you know, acknowledge that, yes, it's scary, but talking about it and giving the patient that that opportunity to maybe do things they wanted to do or, you know, tell people certain things they wanted to say or have those conversations before before they pass away is, is really important. And so a lot of times people will kind of start to realize that. If you go behind their back and you, and you ask the patient that you've broken that trust and, and you're just going to make it so much harder and, you know, they're not going to come to you as the medical establishment and you've just created this barrier for yourself. So you you kind of have to have discussions with them. It's almost like you have two patients at that point and just keep exploring. And it's not so much pushing, but, you know, continuously assessing. And, and a lot of times they do come around eventually. Honestly, this is hard for me. I struggle with this on a personal level. Where is the patient's rights or even responsibility to know what is happening to them? But Sherry wisely pointed out to me that I'm being slightly egocentric. I would argue, though, that that's a very Western way of thinking about it. And I think from a cultural perspective, I think it's important to just keep that in mind and take a deep breath. It's really hard for me not to be able to have these discussions with the kids, but I have to keep reminding myself that that's me and it's about them and how do I help them get there. I think that's where some of this documentation comes into just for, you know, if these discussions have been had with the family and by the time you get to them, they've had 10 different doctors come and try and force them. They're pretty frustrated. They're already in a terrible situation. So, you know, if someone kind of has this discussion, yeah, they feel like things are comfortable, that the family has decided this, just respecting that. So documenting, documenting, documenting. And, you know, this can be really hard on us too, facing mortality and watching patients in a very difficult time in their life and into their death. So how do the experts do it? How can we deal with our grief and trauma as physicians in a healthy way, long-term and in the moment? I mean, I think as ED physicians, we kind of tend to just box things away and move on to the next thing. And so incorporating some of these palliative care type things into our practice taking some time to connect with a patient, even if they do die or with the family. It sucks. You don't like to have a patient die. And But if you've kind of connected and you feel like, okay, I helped guide this family through and I helped maybe make this thing that was horrific a little bit less horrific, there's something that helps prevent like you from feeling like you haven't done anything. Instead of just feeling like you're moving patients through and just doing this, just kind of having that connection for even a few minutes and feeling like, okay, I held that patient's hand or I sat there for a few minutes or I comforted, you know, the wife and explained things. I mean, ever since I've started this, I've probably gotten more hugs from patients, even though you would think, wow, they, you know, they're in a terrible situation. It makes a huge difference and it's only a few minutes. And then I find myself going home feeling a little bit less, you know, burned out or feeling kind of crappy from it. 
I think at some level, you have to be able to compartmentalize just to move on with your day. But what I suggest is make some space during your day to then open that compartment, let some of that out, and just deal with it. And however it is that you deal with it. I mean, what I typically do is on my way home, it's my time that I'm alone in the car. And so most of the time I'm listening to NPR, but some days when I'm having a really hard day, I'll just turn it off. And I might just be quiet. I might play some quiet music or I might sort of rock it out and sing really loud, you know, whatever it is. So that by the time I get home, I've been able to just take some of that, process it, and then I can sort of go home and not have that with me. The other things are sort of more formal debriefing sessions or even sort of a debriefing immediately after. And then one thing that some programs do that I think is is a very, um, very cool thing, it's called the pause. And, uh, you know, it's it's sort of where when a patient dies, everybody on that unit will just take a minute to pause and just just stop. And it's just a minute of silence. And then you go back to, you know, whatever you're regularly doing. So just things like that to honor the patient. Um, and then also just to kind of give yourself that that minute to say, you know, I'm going to grieve along with them. Pulse check. 75% of older Americans are seen in the emergency department within the last six months of their life. Ask yourself, would I be surprised if the patient is alive in six months? If so, consider initiating end-of-life conversations. ASEP has a palliative medicine toolkit that gives us a conversational framework. Start with what the patient already knows about their illness and what their goals are for care. Discuss goal-based care and summarize the next steps. When you have these conversations, document them. Each person is unique and their end-of-life experience will be unique. So connect with the patient and their family. Use the Pulse for acute care, but remember it's not a roadmap that supersedes a conversation. Take care of yourself. Take the time to pause, debrief, and grieve. Recognize how you connected and helped guide the patient and their family through a very difficult time. How do you deal with end-of-life issues in your ED? Connect with us and share your thoughts on social media at Impulse Podcast or on our website, ucdavisem.com. Now, in case you haven't heard, we have another amazing conference coming up. The UC Davis Emergency Medicine Update Hot Topics 2019 will be held in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 5th through 9th at the Kahala Hotel and Resort. So find out more in our show notes. Registration is open. Thank you to our guests for sharing their stories and experiences. They really made this podcast. Thank you to our department for providing excellent health care. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for being my health cure. 